0: The natural sciences, a field that started from Western philosophy, fueled by humans' innate desire to know more about the world that we are living in. From the wonders of Mother Nature, the numerous cells that living organisms are made of, to the unknown secrets of ourselves, the wonders of this machine that we are living in, human anatomy, natural science is inseparable from the wonders of this world. Hi, I'm Talia.
1: And I'm Joshua.
0: And welcome to our podcast, The Uncommon Senses, where we discuss the nature of knowledge and on how we know what we claim to know. So welcome to our special series of interviews, where we discuss different areas of knowledge with our guests. Today, we have Jasmine Chan and Jasmine Poon, and they're university students from the Chinese University of Hong Kong and Bristol University, pursuing majors in medicine and veterinary science. So Jasmine and JP tell us a little bit more about your major and perhaps share a bit on your university lives. What specifically are studying, the program you're enrolled in, and for JP, um, your experiences on living in the university and living abroad, et cetera, yep. Hi, everyone. I'm Jasmine Chan, and I'm currently studying medicine in CUHK.
2: And I think that is really fun because for year one, we just kind of learn more about biology and chemistry. And uh, it is more of like the basics from IB and just a little bit, a little bit Bit more deeper into the subjects. And currently I've studied about anatomy and also health sciences and also other core subjects such as physical education and Chinese society and also some some kind of subjects related to philosophy. Yeah, and Mm. so far I find it really relaxing with a very low workload. And I just kind of mainly uh, focus on my society where we help children to get more health education about uh, Mm. like washing hands and brushing teeth.
3: Yeah, so that's pretty much it. Hey, uh, I'm Jasmine Poone, and I'm studying veterinary science at the University of Bristol. And in our first year, we basically have the main modules, animal management, which is which is all the animal handling things, and then we had professional studies, which is yeah to continue our professional development and all of that. And it has been. Um, there are a lot of information for us to uh, learn, but then it's still yeah, it's quite relaxing, and it's also mm. been pretty cool living in a different country and all that. Yeah. It's it's a lot less city like than Hong Kong. It's like a small town vibe almost, and it's quite relaxing mm. to be. Yeah, it's, it's not as noisy, and you know, you get a lot of like green grass and trees and everything. It's been really nice. Nice
0: cottage core. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: thank you for your awesome introductions and you know let's just jump straight into some theory of knowledge knowledge questions on the natural sciences so especially on biology and chemistry And also, most of these questions are obtained from the website Ivy Mastery, so a lot of thanks to them. So um, my first question to you guys is that, is language necessary for the construction of knowledge in the natural sciences? So as we know, in biology or anatomy, there are a lot of like um, very specific jargons and terminology used, and sometimes it's quite hard to remember. So to what extent do you think these perhaps like Latin names and these terminologies, are useful or detrimental to the pursuit of knowledge in these areas?
2: Uh, So for medicine, I think that language is, of course, very important for the construction of knowledge, because like, when a doctor communicates to the patient, it kind of helps the patient construct knowledge about his or her own symptoms by uh, like, by their, by themselves, and then sometimes the patient may actually don't really know what's happening. Maybe, like, uh, he would just think that uh, his fingers are very painful, so that uh, the doctor need to ask a lot of questions using layman terms, and yeah, I think that it will help the patient contract knowledge, and I also think that, uh, Language is very important in research, like in the medical field, and currently I'm helping out in a a rheumatology department where where they are studying six years of data of different patients, and I think that it would be very hard to actually construct knowledge or or gain knowledge from these numbers because they have like six years of data. So I think language is very important because it kind of organizes everything and turns everything into a readable essay. And also for my own studies, I think that language is important because different symptoms or like medications, they are named in a certain way so that it gives it meaning. So yeah, definitely important. However, I also think that other parts are also important, such as like visuals, because for example, after my exams, I actually forget a lot of the contents, but then uh, I kind of remember most of the diagrams, although I have forgot the words on them already, but then I can still kind of remember how the theory and the logic works. So yeah, the conclusion for me is that language is definitely necessary, however, uh, there's also other parts that are required in the construction of knowledge.
3: I totally agree with that as well. Um, I think that, yeah, it's definitely important when you're trying to communicate with your teammates or anyone else to create a sort of shared knowledge between each other using the language. And like you said, um, a lot of the times names have meanings as well, like the prefixes and suffixes, like they're very useful in helping you guide what that knowledge means. But I think Definitely, maybe a downside would be um, uh, we have so many different languages, so people will use different words for like the same things, and that is like sometimes you would get a bit confused from that, uh, like which term should you use that is correct when both of them are technically talking about the same thing. Yeah, it does get confusing. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. Um from your like from your response, we can see that I think knowledge and language has a very important role in facilitating the communication and spread of knowledge. But um, I think you guys also mentioned a lot of like, um, you know, um, how you know, uh, uh, facilitated your construction of very specific and very um, specialized knowledge. So do you think um, to what extent do you think language can also perhaps segregate commoners from these professional knowledge? So to what extent does it pose a barricade for them to access certain you know, fields of knowledge?
2: I think that uh, is very certain that language will actually segregate commoners from professional doctors. And I think that's why we need to really know, like doctors really need to know how to merge these uh, professional knowledge with the patient's language. And I have some examples. For example, in my internship, uh, doctors, they perhaps need to ask the patient, like, what pills are you taking right now? Because they need to take history and they need to further understand how to give the best treatments to the patients. And most of the times the patient can actually, they will forget the name of the medication or they're not able to uh, say it out loud, except, uh, especially for elderly. So sometimes doctors will just ask the patient, what kind of shape is your medication? Like, is it a triangle or a circle and what color is it? And sometimes they can actually know what pills they're taking through these questions. And also, uh, I, and also, sometimes before seeing the doctors, the patients will need to have a survey about uh, how painful are they, their fingers or uh, toes. And they may actually not know the professional terms, so they would just assess it according to how uh, the redness of their fingers and toes and the level of pain. And then the doctors, they will change that knowledge and calculate a certain number, uh, which gives gives value for the uh for the symptoms and also kind of led them to give the best best treatment to the patients. And also uh, another experience type of thing is like the XCT machine, which allows the doctor to know more about the situation of the patient. But then a lot of patients does not know what this is. And sometimes they may re- refuse this uh, screening So the doctors just need to tell them like, oh, do you remember the XCT machine? And sometimes the patient would say no. And then the doctors would say, oh, it is the machine where you put your hand inside and you need to stay for a very Mm -hmm. long period of time and with towels around your hand. And the patient would be like, oh, I remember that. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, definitely language will segregate commoners from professional doctors, but then like doctors need to kind of like bridge the gap.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, that's very intriguing. So, do you think it's like a limitation, or do you think it's actually you know necessary that um, language segregates you know commoners from these really specified knowledge?
2: Uh, I think that it is necessary because there there is a lot of information from the doctors that like if they talk about those terms, then the patient would not understand it. But then the doctors will need those terms to actually kind of have a better understanding of the entire situation so yeah i think that the segregation is important
1: yeah uh, i see so uh, J- jasmine point do you share a similar view or do you have like um an opposing viewpoint
3: i actually entire uh entirely agree with uh, jasmine here because it is when we have professional terms that makes communication with professionals much more efficient because your words are more specific and targeting to the exact case that you're trying to mention so That would be, so these professional terms are really helpful for us. But at the same time, yes, we have to be aware that clients uh, don't have to be required to learn all these terms. So then we have to um, make sure that they understand it in their common terms and to explain to them. And yeah, so it's something to be aware of definitely when we come into practice. But at the same time, these terms are pretty essential for professionals.
0: I also agree with the fact that I do believe that. Like, there is a need for segregation because, like, from me, my direct experience is, oh, doctors, when they prescribe me things, they write so messily, I have no idea what they're writing. And perhaps before, I would think, well, that's kind of mean, right? Like, you're just deliberately not letting me know what you're writing. But then I realized, like, it is important because it can easily be used by someone else to prescribe themselves like and diagnose themselves with things that they're not. So I think when it comes to like anything related to the medicine, I do think there is a need for you to, you know, segregate between someone that has professional knowledge and is is able to give you a proper diagnosis or else it might be exploited or used by someone that lacks that ability.
1: Yeah, um, for me, I actually hold a slightly different viewpoint, I think, um, you know, while it is a necessity, I think um, we also need, uh, as Jasmine, uh, Jasmine Chan has said, we also need that gap to really allow commoners to ass- assess these really specific um, terminologies, and I think um, even though you know specific terminologies can you know allow people to communicate smoothly without a very niche um community i do think that um sometimes it could pose like perhaps a restriction to um people's understanding if terminologies are too specific or or they're too um their understanding is only restricted to a certain community so um personally i still feel like there is like it does create disparity in, you know, um, education and knowledge, but yeah, I, and I think as long as there's like a smooth communication between, um, you know, the communicator and the people listening to the terms, I think it's fine to have this, um, segregation. So, um, With with a similar question um, as uh, as before, as we know, labels are a necessity in the organization of knowledge, but they may also constrain our understanding in some sense. So, you know, as we know, language uh, labels are very important to um, label different types of body parts, um, histology names and so on. So, um, you know, a similar question. um, To what extent do you think um, these um, labeling these different, um, perhaps um, different entities in and natural sciences restrain knowledge, or do they? Um, as mentioned before, do they um allow the facilitation and communication of these um knowledge? Uh,
2: I think that for me, uh, it is a funny thing. Guess I also wrote for this label question for my TOK essay, and I think that labels is really important because. Uh, in medicine, we need to label different body parts and different cell types and in histology we like, uh, need have a lot of similar structures like when you look at the screen, they're all all like pink and purple and you just see like pink and purple in every slide. But then the way we differentiate it is, uh, is by the structures inside it and also like the structures around the cells. So sometimes the difference is just that some cells are slightly bigger and rounder and it is pretty hard to see. So by labeling them and seeing a lot of the same type of labeled cell, we, it actually helps us to identify the t- cell type. And I think that that's very important. And uh, yeah, for my for studying histology and for getting it kind of like a good grade in it. And another point is like for anatomy, a lot of times we use like superior, posterior to talk about like if the organ is like, uh, in, like in the, bottom part on the top part, and also things like lateral, and it makes things easier to m- remember. However, I can also see how labels can be restricting because there will always be exceptions. For example, there are certain diseased cells and they may not look like the other normal cells and we may misidentify them. So I think that is it is always important to learn about the exceptions.
3: Yeah, yeah I feel just the same uh, about that as well because labels are very important for us to like learn about the subject because it helps us understand more about um yeah like different body parts different like how you um identify position of things and all of that but at the same time it's important to remember that there are cases where you have to think outside of the box so like perhaps you have uh like a specific disease that we learned about but there are cases when perhaps there are, um like you will find different symptoms of enduring clinical exams and different problems that may show up uh, that are not the common ones. And so it's very important to, while uh, not be too reliant on labels, even though they're really helpful for us to learn about, um, yeah, the course and all that.
1: Yeah, so thank you for both of your response. I think you guys are able to really show us how language could both, you know, facilitate and restrain our knowledge. And, you know, as of utmost important when we're studying natural sciences, uh, especially in terms of the academic sense. So moving on, let's talk about, you know, ethics. So I know, you know, studying both human and veterinary medicine requires one to have a very strong moral compass. After all, the lives of living creatures in, are in their hands. But obviously, this is a very subjective from subject to subject or even person to person having been an area of contention in much of the scientific community. So I would like to ask do you think um, sci- um, do you think scientists should have a moral compass? or and especially in the sense of like animal testing so do you think it's ethical and should it be permitted for the purposes of human benefits you know i'm just curious about to see both of your response since um you know you you two work in very different fields despite it both being medicine one being working with humans and the other working with animals so i'm just very curious to see um your different viewpoints on animal testing and using it as an example to see does scientists really require a moral compass and doing all sorts of research and their work.
3: Yeah, ethics is a really big part of veterinary science, especially because we're formed on the basis of animal welfare. So we really, yeah, we really put a lot of focus on discussing about ethics. And um, it's a, it's part of our profession, like part of being a professional to at least have some uh, ethic and more responsibilities. But um, it's, we learned that like some people have different views towards um ethics such as like utilitarianism or virtual theory, that different modes of um et- uh different modes of ethics that people can take up. But the way that um like veterinary science like to in order to standardize this kind of ethical responsibility, we will put down regulations and laws and things like that. So for animal testing, um we know that it dates back like a long time ago. And back then there aren't any rules and regulations. So um, from now, there's, it's in this day of age, a lot of things have been set up to make sure that um, animals have, been, have like, we have minimized all the harm we do to animals. It's like things we learn in biology as well, like to reduce, uh, refine and um, replace. Like we learned that from biology to kind of make sure we're only using animals when we really need them. And uh, some things that uh maybe more detailed that we learn in our course is uh, this home office uh, license that you will have to obtain if you are going to do uh, any sort of harm uh, towards an animal. That it's more, more than just like uh, putting in needles or like, yeah, the injection into an animal. Um, and lots, there are lots of protected animals as well, like uh companion animals uh dogs and cats horses and even people are trying to argue right now that even lobsters and crabs shouldn't be harmed because um they have uh since like they're sentient as well and consciousness and i think that's a big thing we can discuss as well is consciousness of animals because um how we uh decide what animals we can like test on like what is what is like considered ethical a lot of times we talk about uh consciousness like if they feel pain and that is like a big discussion because it's we can't measure that it's impossible for us to know and the only way we're doing it by now is how similar their brains are to humans or like yeah how they react and things like that but yeah there are a lot of um rules to put in place and a lot of um different guidelines to help guide that's to what research can be done and what research cannot be yeah
1: Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, you know, um, I I completely agree with you. Um, And it's good to see that how... um there are guidelines and there are, you know, regulations set up to protect the rights of organisms, no matter from, you know, dogs and cats or or like um, animals that were considered are um, the most sentient, perhaps, I'm not sure if I used it correctly, or like to um, animals that we recently discovered may have like, you know, certain pain receptors, making it unethical to also test on them. So, um, yeah, also, so let's use an example. So, you know, in recent years, there have been some, you know, medical breakthrough as to harvest, genetically modified pig hearts to save the lives of heart failure patients using organ transplants. So um, I'm just curious, um, uh, building on what you said, do you think this is ethical to really just um, to um, create create animals just for the sole purposes of like harvesting their organ and trying to um, provide, you know, the best care for human beings? Do human beings have the right to kind of manipulate and control these natural processes for their own selfish desires?
3: um i feel like uh if we judge it from the fact that because um when you do transplant and all of that it's going to harm the animal and cause a lot of pain and um yeah you can think about all of that and their quality of life is really not that good because you're really just breathing them up and you can imagine um yeah like they won't have they won't have that um like the best quality that like not when they could just be pigs living so it it could i think that um in terms of animal welfare it's not really a right thing to do like in my opinion it's not like very ethical um it's like for example uh even cat kidney transplants like cats between cats they are not allowed uh but you cuz you cannot do it on a live donor especially because like yeah it costs it, like it's it causes too much pain, causes too much harm, and it's not, um, you know, it's not really worth it, and yeah, so it's not even allowed uh, for cat t- kidney mm-hmm. transplants to happen. So I don't think that, um, yeah, doing it to pigs is like any better, and yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that makes sense, right? You know what gives us the right to con to um determine, you know, what is um you know, what should be done with like the lives of other animals, you know, after all, um, you know, from a scientific viewpoint, humans are also a kind of animal in in a sense. Um, So Jasmine Chan, do you agree with what, you know, Jasmine Poon is saying, you know, as as a doctor, if you were tasked to really perform a, you know, to really save a patient dying of a heart failure, would you agree to really take the heart of a pig to do the transplant?
2: Hmm. Actually I'm not very sure about this but then uh as a point of view like just for myself I think that uh if that person is actually dying I will I'll probably do that because I will feel like the person is uh like the life the life of that person is very important and uh I'm not really in I'm, I don't really know much about like a research in animals but then like I've learned about a research with humans so Uh, like a lot of research includes human participants and I do know that like there's this declaration of Helsinki where we kind of want to protect those participants rights and there are seven main requirements for uh, like having patients or like uh, people in ethical research and it includes social and scientific value the scientific validity, and also like the favorable risk-benefit ratio and I think like the very subject selections are also very important as well as the independent review, informed consent, and also the respect for potential and enrolled subjects. So because currently I'm also like uh, helping out in a research which includes human patients and there is not big of a risk, it is just tracking up data, but then I also need to kind of hand out consent forms to them. So I think that like informed consent is very important and yeah, that's, pretty much it and I think that these uh, requirements should be keep on being updated because like previously it has also been changed a lot of times because uh like I think that as technology and also as our like as the as the general population is more and more educated they will want to know more about like the research that they are participating in yeah so that's mainly the information from me yeah
1: Yeah, I think it's very interesting, you know, there are two different viewpoints based on, you know, two different subjects being studied. And, you know, it really brings a lot of questions. should there be a declaration of Helsinki for animals? Should they sign the consent consent form saying that I do not want to participate in animal testing? So, you know, really leaves a lot of room for thoughts, I think. Yeah. And, you know, um, moving on, um, I think we can also talk about, you know, on the subject of ethics, um, I have some, you know, individual questions I would like to ask uh, each of you in regards to you know, your field of expertise. So, uh, as you know, both humans and animal doctors, they hold a substantial amount of power, and you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, in this case, ethical one. So, I would like to just to ask. Um, a series of questions talking to the extent of power of which a doctor could have over the life of a patient. So, you know, let's uh, let's start with you, Jasmine Chan. So for um, uh, the first question I'd like, I'd like to ask is something related to public health. So in recently, there has been debates about vaccination and herd immunity. So I would just like to ask, um, you know, do you think one's personal freedom should be prioritized above the health of the public? Uh, I For me,
2: I would think that uh, one person of course both personal health and also like the public health is very important and I think that uh like for herd immunity well from what I understand is it is that like a lot of people they are getting vaccinated so it can sort of protect the entire population and I think that for vaccination like uh, autonomy can be very important if herd immunity is already achieved so like if there's already enough people vaccinated. I don't think it is that much of a deal if you don't want to get vaccinated. But then like if herd immunity is still, still not achieved, I think that it is still very important for us as doctors to persuade patients to get vaccinated. However, like it will be wrong if we force them to because like uh, the idea of autonomy is very important. And also because like for vaccines, if we only have a limited amount of vaccines, then the idea of justice will also be very important because limited resources should be allocated uh, in a better way so that the people who actually want the vaccine can get it. Yeah. And for public health, uh, what we have learned is that policy makers is kind of like uh, more important than individuals and the decisions they do is more important. So I think that, uh, rather than saying like doctors should force uh people to get vaccinated i think that a better solution for her immunity would be some policies
3: yeah
1: yeah that's very interesting you know so you're saying you know we should encourage you which know, encourage the public to really be vaccinated and develop herd immunity but you know we should also you know value personal freedom and allow them to have the ultimate decision to you know control their own faith and you know let's as all you know um Ethic question. So let's push this to the extreme. So, you know, let's jump into another field euthanasia. So given a similar situation, if a patient is nearly dying, but wants to live, should he or she be euthanized, given that, you know, even if it's restraining resources from patients that may have a larger chance of survival, do you think, you know, oh, the patient should be put down? Or do you think um, the patient should, you know, still be kept alive since that's what he or she wants?
2: Uh, I think that for Evanesia, I think that, like, of course, like, if it is actually happening in real life, I think it is illegal in Hong Kong, so I just won't do it at all. But then, like, if given the case that, like, uh, this is happening, I think that um, perhaps I would kind of like need to evaluate this with the team. Mm -hmm. And I think that I would definitely kind of like understand the idea of autonomy, and I think I would try to give uh, Evanesia to this particular patient. And of course there will be other patients who will actually uh, have a smaller chance of survival. Yeah, but then I will also need to look at other aspects such as like, do they actually want this or not? Or maybe like they want to live for a longer period of time. So I think there will be a lot of things to assess, assess before I make this decision, yeah.
1: Mm. Yes, uh, thank you for your response. So, you know, there are, there is a lot of different considerations regarding, um, you know, euthanasia and which patients to save. And, you know, these are questions have long been, you know, questions that um, are asked in perhaps, you know, when you're trying to apply for medicine in university, when they ask you not ethical questions, since it has been much, an area of much contention. So, uh, Jasmine Poon, so, um, you know, on the same area of in, in euthanasia, so, you know, in animal treatment in you know, veterinary medicine, um, a lot of times, as a future veterinarian, you may be facing a problem. So if the owners of a pet is not able to afford treatment for a sick animal, does that give them the right to euthanize said animal? Because, you know, in the law, it does say they are, they are allowed to do that. But personally, do you think that should be the case?
3: Um... Honestly, like, as you said that we have great power. The truth is that we cater like as general practice veterinaries, we cater to the client. So whatever we do, the client must we have must have consent from the client, and it must be the client's decision. The most we can do is encourage them, persuade them, make them understand. But when it comes to things like money problems, there is it is a huge problem, and that is why uh, but but are always trying to advocate to like, to teach the public that if you don't have the, like, the necessary um, money and um, uh, assets to um, take care of an animal, you shouldn't get one. And that's because in the end of the day, it mm-hmm. is the client's um, decision. And uh, as much as it sometimes is painful to see that an animal could have a chance of living, but it might be because the um Client does not have enough money or something, and then we have to euthanize the animal. Uh, that is um, a very common case, and it's quite sad, and it's quite out of our hands when it comes to that kind of problem. Yeah.
1: Ah, I see. So there is like a focus on the client's consent on whether, you know, um, they are able to afford said treatment. Otherwise, uh, the animal will have to be euthanized. So, you know, speaking of, you know, the rights of a client to determine the fate of their animals, do you support like, you know, crossbreeding pets or, you know, to kind of uh, genetically modifying pets so they have, you know, stronger chances of survival or to wide? Uh, to widen their biodiversity? Do you think humans have the right to kind of alter one's, you know, genetic formulation um, against perhaps the choice of nature or like the uh, natural processes?
3: I'm not like a big fan of genetically modifying. Uh, There are lots of perhaps like controversies or different opinions, but I think in my own perspective, I believe that because um, a lot like the natural process happens through um, like uh, which like a survival trait is always the one that's most beneficial mm-hmm. so when you cross these things like that you have for example brachiocephalic dogs that is like a very big topic for like a lot of years and that's basically the fact that these dogs aren't actually uh, like meant to be like this they're not meant to have such, such short snouts because that causes so many breathing problems and that has um, cause a lot of like detrimental animal welfare to their lives because so many dogs are having heat strokes, so many dogs have respiratory issues that the client might not have um, the money to treat or things like that, and it's really um, yeah, it's quite sad to see. And uh, yeah, personally, I think that it's it's always best to to cater to the dogs like to the animals' animal welfare rather than uh, what the public enjoys like what the public likes in their aesthetic uh, so yeah i'm not the biggest fan of like genetically modifying or doing anything that's not um per se natural
1: yeah i really like that mindset so you know to treat animals like a per- we should really treat animals like a person and you know we wish sh- their comfort should be their utmost priority and it's our responsibility to make sure that they are comfortable and they have the best life they have so yeah, yeah um You know, lastly, I would just like to ask one last question. So with the advancement of technology, um, AI has been increasingly used in both, you know, human and animal medicine to reduce human errors and to increase efficiency. So to what extent do you think AI should be allowed to, you know, to be involved in the works of doctors? And do you think at some point, do you think AI would be able to perhaps replace the works of, you know, physicians or uh, veterinarians?
3: Um, I think that um, if AI is in terms of just technology and equipment, it has been really helpful, like the development of these technologies, such as like endoscopies and gaseous ghosts, because you can have like minimal incisions, minimal invasiveness, and that will really uh, benefit um, the animal in terms of how much pain you're causing it and how fast they like recover from it. And so these technologies definitely very helpful. But when you say to what extent um, thinking, maybe far off in the future, maybe there's some kind of robotic veterinarians doing the procedures. And I think uh, that will that would be um, not very good because then you don't really have someone who's accountable for it, someone who's responsible and in control of the procedure and what they're doing. And it can cause really, it can cause a lot of friction between clients' trust towards um, the vets if we turn it into like a robotic industry because. Yeah, you don't have anyone to hold accountable anymore. And like, what if the um, robot fails or something like that? Like, um, yeah, it will it will kind of break that client and bet uh, relationship, which will then obviously um, decline the use of bets in the in the world, and then animal welfare could drop.
1: It. Do that. So, Jasmine Chan, do you share the same sentiment?
2: Yeah, I think I share. <laughs> sentiment because of course using AIs in surgery surgery will be very helpful because uh, we'll always have human error and sometimes it can result in really bad damage and like really serious consequences however I think that AI can like it cannot replace humans and like it cannot replace uh, physicians because a main part of being a doctor is more communication and sometimes like we need to kind of like I'll talk about like the good sides and also like the side effects of some drugs and I think that AI will not be able to do that and also like for example breaking bad news and also like giving emotional response so I think mm-hmm. that doctors are also very important and although I have no experience with AI in surgery I do see how like we can use tools for tying up like a uh, a wound in, sur- in surgery or also we can use a hand tie although when using a tool tie it is much much more easier and it will be much more pre- prettier and easier to manage however there are some places where you cannot tie uh, the string using a tool so you need to use your own hands so I think for now AI can not completely replace humans and also like Physicians are also very important in surgery and also I think that AIs are more important in like for example producing images or uh, like parts of like yeah, screening tests however physicians are always required for interpretation and I don't really think that it can be replaced now like just just now yet yeah so that is my point of view.
1: Uh, so I guess like, you know, from both of your response, we won't be seeing, you know, robot veterinarians or robot physicians in the near future. So, yeah, thank you for all of your response. And yeah, I think this, that's it for, you know, the more perhaps more academic aspects of our interview. So, you know, next we would like to, you know, understand more about, you know, your personal um, experiences in studying in these fields. So now I'll hand the time over to Talia.